this week, we are moving to the second chapter of Galatians, continuing the narration that Paul began in the very beginning of Galatians. And as we move forward in this autobiographical narration, we find that there are a couple of reasons why this particular portion, verses 1 through 10 of the second chapter, are a little difficult for us to understand at times. Three of those reasons I'd like to give you. One is that Luke barely mentions these events in the book of Acts. And we'll do our best to show you where this is found in the book of Acts. Another reason is that, may I remind you that rhetorical speech or a rhetorical speech is being delivered here. And so the language at times can uh, tend to throw us off. A third thing is that there are social and political issues, things that we are simply not accustomed to dealing with. And when that is the case, um, well, they're just things that make us uncomfortable that we wouldn't like to hear in our fellowship for sure. And so since there are things we're just not used to hearing, we, um, well, they're new to us. So as we get, begin here in Galatians 2 and verse number 1, these are the events that we'll call the events at the Jewish church. Next week we will pick up in verse 11, and they'll be the events at the Gentile church. Let's talk first about the rhetoric. The rhetorical culture fostered the comparison of speakers and philosophers, and normally this included debates and competitions. It's clear enough that Paul sees himself as in competition with the agitators over the hearts and minds of the Galatian converts. So at stake, of course, was their future, and of course, also Paul's competition. So the Galatians were under pressure to make a comparison between Paul's message and that of the Judaizers. You'll notice back in chapter 1, in verse 20, he adds a little parenthetical statement there. He says, And what I'm writing to you before God, I lie not. So you can see he's already in competition. So you will notice often Paul must respond with both polemics, that means argumentation, and also clear teaching as to what the Galatians should believe and do in the future. And again, that's why we've pointed out over and over again the theme. That is, commit to Christ, not the Mosaic Law, or you will find nothing but division and disaster. Now to the social implications. In the Greco-Roman world, honor was closely bound up with authority and power. If Paul could show to his Galatian converts that he was not shamed by the Jerusalem church 
which he will do in this story that he's uh, revealing from the past, then he would gain the upper hand in Galatia as he saw it. Now, finally, the political. Again, we don't like this type of language. We dismiss it and we reject it as improper, impolite, and we're often rebuffed by it. But Paul uses political rhetoric like, or to characterize his opponents in what would be known as good propaganda fashion. You'll see throughout this text that he calls them spies. He says that uh, they seek to enslave others, that they have been secretly smuggled in or infiltrated uh, a private meeting. He calls them false brothers. Paul, however, and his group, He'll say things like they refuse to act like conquered people and refuse to yield in submission to the false ones. So these are things that, again, we would be repulsed by in a conversation or in a sermon. So when we go through this, when you see this type of language, we have to understand what's being said, why it's being said. And again, this is uh, common in Paul's day. Uh, in a rhetorical speech. Beginning here in chapter 2, verse number 1, we read, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. So after 14 years, so this appears, this 14 years appears to be since Paul's conversion. In other words, it appears to be accumulative. We've talked how that Paul was saved in Damascus, he went off to Arabia, back to Damascus. We're told that is about a three-year period. He then goes up to Jerusalem for 15 days. In Jerusalem, they send him back to Cilicia, his home province. Barnabas retrieves him after some time, probably at least 10 years. And so he's been busy in evangelistic work all this time, reaching mostly Gentiles. Barnabas retrieves him, as we said, and then while in um, Antioch uh, with Barnabas and others serving there in that predominantly Gentile church at this time, he heads back to Jerusalem. So after 14 years. This is Paul's second visit to Jerusalem meaning this happened before the mission journey. When exactly was this trip in Paul's itinerary? Let's look back again to chapter 1 and uh, verse number 17. Well, we'll skip that because we've already uh, just sort of uh, given you a brief summary of that. But that talks about all of those trips that I just mentioned there. But he says when he goes to Jerusalem this second time, he takes Barnabas, or he and Barnabas, he goes with Barnabas, and that's important, taking Titus along with him. So the very fact that he mentions going with Barnabas suggests that this was prior to the mission trip. Barnabas still being in the lead, giving that lead spot or position. And so this again tells us that it was prior to um, 
the switch that takes place in Acts 13, 43, where all of a sudden Paul, Luke mentions Paul as the leader. It then becomes Paul and Barnabas rather than uh, Barnabas and Paul or Barnabas and Saul. So that again is another timing um, data point that we have. Now to verse number two. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Here again, another timing clue. He says, I went up because of a revelation. Now, this really opens up for us the timing aspect. I went up because of a revelation. If you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 11, I think we find here the very revelation. In Acts 11, in verse number 27, we read these words. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Remember, Paul is now in Antioch with Barnabas and other leaders in that church. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit. There's a revelation. That there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. Verse 29. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Again, you see, this is prior to um, Acts 13 and verse number 43. You find Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas giving the lead position. So the numerous timestamps in these 10 verses in Galatians chapter 2, 1 through 10 point to this being the trip that Paul is most likely referring to. Again, this is his second trip according to the book of Acts. And he tells us in Galatians chapters 1 and 2 that this is his second trip to Jerusalem. They're heading there. They're carrying relief to these struggling saints in Judea. And in this second verse of Galatians 2, he says, I set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. So he's been at it for 14 years. We read in Galatians 2 verse 1, he's been at it for 14 years. He's been uh, preaching the gospel to Gentiles. And he says, I'm telling them what gospel I've been preaching. I'd like to quote C.K. Barrett here who says, he does not say he was seeking either correction or validation. It is nearer the truth to say that he could see that trouble was blowing up and went to lay his cards on the table, recognizing that though Jerusalem authorities could not prove him wrong or right, they could ruin his life's work. Now that's pretty interesting, and that'll reveal itself a little more as we go. And he uses the word privately there. He went to do it privately. This is, again, one more clue to help us when the meeting took place. Because for those who want this meeting to line up with the 
Acts 15 Jerusalem Council that takes place after his mission journey, we have to remember that that meeting was not held in private. Another thing he says there in this verse number two of Galatians 2 is that he went to do it before those who seemed influential. Now, this is where Paul's rhetorical skills kick in. Though for us, it may appear that it is the beginning of casting aspersions on the church leaders in Jerusalem. Most likely, he's actually pressing in on the Judaizers in Galatia who've exalted these leaders. Remember, he's retelling the story for their sake. Remember, Paul's not just reminiscing in a letter. He's at war with the enemies of the cross and not the churches of Christ. And then he says the phrase, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. Notice that Paul speaks of the gospel I proclaim, meaning the present tense, not the gospel I proclaimed. He's making a claim that he has not changed his mission or message along the way, a point highly relevant for the Galatian audience hearing this speech. They needed to be able to trust that Paul's message had not changed through the years and that what they had heard and believed was not different from what other converts to Christianity had heard and believed. In other words, it's the same message because Paul's honor is partly based on his consistency. And then the phrase or the sentence in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. Paul's not worried about running uselessly or without effect, or as we would say, for nothing. To repeat, he did not want the Judaizers from Jerusalem to destroy the fruits of his labor in Cilicia, Arabia, and even in Antioch. Again, remember... This was before Galatia. He did not want the folks in, uh, the the Judaizers in Jerusalem, those who had tried to marry Moses and Christ. He did not want them returning to the places where he had worked for 14 years and to steal the hearts of these converts. He did not want them to destroy that hard work. And we can all imagine that, whether we serve in a gospel ministry or we serve the Lord in any other type of work. Imagine with your own children. You don't want uh, the school system to steal the hearts of your children. You don't want uh, to work hard in a business and for some crazy politician to come in and to destroy the work you've done there. And uh, the application can be made in many areas. And this is what Paul is saying. While Paul did not see their endorsement as an authorization of his gospel or his mission or even his apostleship, he did fear that if they rejected or censured him and his mission, it would adversely affect not only his missionary work, but also the prospects of there being a unified people of God, Jew and Gentile, united in Christ. And you'll see that come out later as we continue through the book as well. Turn, if you would, to Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 28. So I I want to remind you now, 
This is really a 15, 20-minute speech. And Paul knows where he's going with it. And so he's laying foundation. Every time he says something, he's referring to something, and he's also building a foundation. In verse number 28 of chapter 3, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so the apostle wants a unified people of God, Jew and Gentile, united in Christ. God has made it clear to him, and he is an expert on the Old Covenant, but had been blind for many years until Christ opened his eyes on the Damascus Road. And is, now that his eyes are open, he can see through the New Covenant, through the opening of his eyes, through the cross of Christ, all the types of the Old Testament. Now those Old Testament verses that many of which Peter tells us weren't even clear to the prophets who spoke them. Now these are making perfect sense to the apostle. Now he sees clearly that this is a gospel that is to be presented to the world, that there is to be a church of one, not Jew and Gentile, not a separation, but we are to be one bride of Christ in the new covenant. And so Paul is working for that. So again, in Paul's view, the issue is not authorization, but rather recognition of one already authorized, that is himself, by Christ alone, and one of cooperation in the future. Now verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Now you got to love this. It's possible that Paul wanted a showdown. I suspect he really wanted to get the issue settled. And he took Titus with him as a deliberate provocation. And he got one. Jerusalem was clearly a divided church. They were clearly working, I suppose slowly, to get through some of these issues that were very difficult. You have to remember that Moses was a legend and Moses was the deliverer and the the uh, not only deliverer from Egypt in, in the eyes, 1,500 years later, in the eyes of these um, Hebrews, but he also delivered to them the Mosaic Covenant. We call it the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant from God, the old covenant. And he uh, was their administrator. He was their judge. Um, he led them in all things. Paul then uses the phrase, was not forced to be circumcised. Now we're getting to the meat of the matter. Titus is not just exhibit A for the Jerusalem church, which he was in that scenario. But now that Paul is repeating it, he's using him as a paradigm that is a model for the Galatians as well. In other words, it's as if the Jerusalem leaders would say the same thing in person to the Galatians that they did to Titus on this very occasion. And what he is saying is this. 
if we don't have to become Jewish to attain God's favor, we don't have to act Jewish to maintain God's favor. You see, today, Christians, we don't argue over circumcision. But there is, in, for, for many, for, for many who would say, no, I understand the old covenant is, is not what we're under, there still is a seeping in of the old covenant in many of our thinking. And for Paul, when he would bring up circumcision, he, he meant that as symbolic of the old covenant itself. So when we mention circumcision and we read circumcision, Paul will often um, use the synonym of, do you not hear the law? He's referring to the entire old covenant. So when you hear circumcision uh, or you read circumcision, Paul's not just meaning of that uh, initiation right uh, to becoming a Jew. He's referring to all of it, the entire kit and caboodle. Now verse number four. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. Now this is that political type of speech that I referred to earlier. Paul does not withhold his punches. Again, this is a deliberative uh, rhetorical speech. He is... He, he goes uh, for, for the arteries. When he says false brothers, so let's remember there are three groups involved. There are pa- Paul, Barnabas, and Titus who represent the Gentile mission. They're the pillars of the Jerusalem church. And then there are the spies or the intruders. And the third group is where Paul directs his polemics, his strong arguments. And also we should note that Paul is referring to something that should not have happened. This was supposed to be a private meeting. They were, as Paul puts it, secretly brought in. That is, they were smuggled in. And this describes to us a conspiracy. Honestly, we have to ask, who smuggled them in? This was a private meeting. Apparently, they had a sympathizer among the higher-ups who was perhaps worried about how the meeting might go. Was it Peter? Was it James or John? We don't know. Of course, we can guess who Luther thought it was, if you know anything about Luther's ideas about the epistle of James. Obviously, there were enough influential types in the church at Jerusalem so that a few extras were not noticed. So this was not a meeting of six or seven people. Clearly, it was a meeting much larger than that. And it was a large church at Jerusalem, so understandably it was larger. But it says, who slipped in to spy? Paul seems to see them as undercover agents and conspirators whose plan was to expose what happened in the private meeting. But why? Well, Paul says their goal was to bring us into slavery. 
by which he means not just himself and Barnabas and Titus, but also Paul's converts. Certainly the past ones, as we've mentioned in those first 14 years, but also the future ones. They wanted to usurp or take over Paul's work, it appears. And then, of course, he says, our freedom we have in Christ. This appears to be the heart of Paul's message laid out before the Jerusalem authorities. The freedom which we have in Jesus Christ. And that phrase, in some ways, could be said to be the theme of the entire act of Paul's persuasion. And I want to I point out to you and show, uh, how often Paul uses the idea of freedom here. But I also want to point out to you that freedom for Paul was not freedom to sin, which is often almost alluded to by those who fly the banner of Christianity. It's rather freedom from religious and old world tradition in order that we might be free to serve God through the Lord Jesus Christ under the law of Christ. The noun is used four times, the noun for freedom. It's, of course, used here in Galatians 2 and uh, verse number 4, but also used in Galatians 5 verse 1, where Paul writes, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In Galatians 5 verse 13, you, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The same word is used as an adjective six times. In Galatians 3 verse 28, we read earlier, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In Galatians 4 verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. The next verse, verse 23, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Verse 26 of that same chapter, but the Jerusalem from above is free. She's our mother. Verse 30, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not, shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. And then verse 31 of chapter 4, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And then it's used in a verse as, uh, as a verb back in chapter 5, verse 1, as we've read before, where it says, Freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. What an emotional chord to strike. In first century society, the distinction between slave and free was fundamental, just as it was in American history. The terms are self-evident. Everyone wants to be free. Verse number five. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul was not giving an inch. Paul had been set free and he was not going back. And he was not letting anyone else be sent back. Hallelujah! 
we might think of Paul as a spiritual abolitionist. He even says, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. He's thinking of the future. He's not suggesting he already had converts in Galatia at the time of the second visit to Jerusalem. But what he is saying is that he stood on the principle of a law-free gospel. So that his Gentile converts in the future would be benefited. And it is for this reason that some have called the letter to the Galatians the Magna Carta of Christian freedom. Now we see the crowning moment in verse number 6. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. So here in verse 6, we return to the main discussion begun in verses 1 and 2. Now, Paul walks a a tightrope in this passage in the language he uses about the apostles. His harsh language is reserved for the false brothers and those like them. He uses kind of ironic language of the pillars because he believes them to be touted using merely human criteria by his critics. His goal is to discredit the touters and the touting, not the ones being touted. Paul has no wish to discredit these Jerusalem leaders. He's admitted that he sought and desired their approval and cooperation in his missionary work. But he wishes to make clear that the normal sort of criteria used to determine human honor ratings are not to stand and should not apply in the church. And the little phrase, God shows no partiality, Well, that's littered throughout the New Testament by other apostles as well. Here he's suggesting that he is following God's lead in the matter, unlike the agitators in Galatia. And then what does he mean by the phrase, added nothing to me? Well, that can really sound harsh, but Paul is saying that the Jerusalem authorities added nothing to and subtracted nothing to his own status or his honor rating. All of that came to him from the grace of God and by God through his grace. He was not beholden to them for the fact that he was a Christian or an apostle. They had added nothing to what God had already done in his life. On the other hand, it would be untrue to say that they had added no tasks or made no distinctions about fields of service because the next few verses, well, they'll make it clear that they did. Verse 7. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. Of course, Paul did not take this agreement to mean that he would never preach to Jews, he did, or that Peter would never address Gentiles, he did. They're talking about, or Paul is talking about, the major focus and purpose of their respective ministries. Surely one of the main reasons Paul was irritated with the agitators in Galatia is because, quote, the ones from James were Jewish Christians seeking to primarily influence Gentile Christians to become like Jewish Christians, which was, in fact, a violation of the Jerusalem agreement. 
Gentiles were Paul's and his co-workers' target audience. The agitators were intruding on Paul's turf. An agreement that had been reached, but that agreement had been breached. So it's understandable why Paul would bring this story up for even that reason. Now verse 8. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Again, he gives Peter props. Paul believes that it is God, not the Jerusalem church, that selects apostles and calls them to specific fields of ministry. It is God who is effectively at work when Peter exercised his apostleship, just, as, just like it was God who was at work at Peter, at Paul, in Paul when he evangelized the Gentiles. So what we're talking about is is missionary work that was already undertaken before the Jerusalem meeting and about the Jerusalem leaders simply seeing and recognizing what God was already doing through these men. These men. In other words, we're not talking about a planned missionary strategy set in motion by the Jerusalem leaders, but a retroactive recognition of what already was happening. Now verse 9. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Here we, here we go again, pillars. So calling these men the pillars was no small honor rating by Paul. He was lifting them up in a rhetorical speech. This would have been seen as large in this type of speech in that day. It invested in these men an enormous importance and implied that they had tremendous power and authority from and for God. It's important to recognize from an, a rhetorical standpoint that that's the very opposite of his, of his, treat, of his treatment of the Judaizers. Sometimes people appoint to these things in this particular part of the speech and say that Paul had no respect for them. And I think as we look at it, we'll see that's not the case. Sometimes, though, the question will come up, why James is so exalted in Jerusalem? So let me just address that for a moment and say that in the Middle East, the line of inheritance passes horizontally from one brother to another. So it is quite understandable that how after the death of Jesus, the Jerusalem church might look to James, his brother, for leadership. What is also expressed here is the high privilege and status of James, which Paul does not dispute. If Paul really believed that deliberate attacks were coming against his gospel from James himself, it's quite unlikely that he would have spoken in this way about James, who he clearly distinguishes with the label, the Lord's brother in chapter 1 and verse number 19. Finally, he says they gave him the right hand of fellowship. Now the word fellowship there is the term koinonia. It's important here referring to a sharing of something in common or a participating with others in something. In this case, the proclamation of the gospel must be what Paul says they agreed to share or participate in together. 
consider Acts 2.42 where we read all of the disciples where they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, the koinonia, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Now Galatians 2.10, the last verse. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Another timing data point. In other words, Paul's saying that's why we came here in the first place. That's why we went to Jerusalem. It's quite clear that Paul does not mean the poor in general, and that needs to be pointed out as well. Surely not the spiritually poor, for how would taking up a collection improve that condition? But rather the, pro- the poverty-stricken among the saints in the Jerusalem church. And we've all heard this text taken out of context or spiritualized. Remembering the poor is the saints, in, in particular here, the saints in Judea. But of course it's used other places and it refers to our brothers and sisters who are in need. Also, I think it's important to remember here that Barnabas has a strong connection to the church at Jerusalem. He served under Peter. In Acts chapter 3, he even sold his land to help in caring for the Jerusalem saints. In Acts 3 and verse number 30. Acts chapter, I think it must be Acts chapter 4. Let's see. Verse number 36 we read, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, verse 37, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So the for Paul here, When we get to the end of this story, I think he's revealing to us that for him the issue of the law within the church is settled. Circumcision meaning the whole thing. The old covenant issues are done with. They're settled. They've offered them the right hand of fellowship. You go to the Gentiles. We'll go to the the, the Jews. It's settled. There's no reason for this to ever come up again. It's done But I want to give you a peek into next week's lesson where we see the events at the Gentile church. And notice those first six words there. But when Cephas came to Antioch. Don't you love being in a conversation and you hear someone say, but, but, we'll do this, but. And that's what Paul presents to the Galatians. Something else happened. But when Cephas came to Antioch, in other words, it wasn't settled. In other words, certain men came from James to you in Galatia. In other words, Judaizers showed up even when I was preaching there to you, even later in Acts chapter 14. But it's 2,000 years later and people are still trying to slide the law in to those who claim and proclaim Christ. But people are even sliding in the law of man. But you got to get baptized to go to heaven. But 
You're not a good Christian if you don't obey the Sabbath, but... And so the issue never seems to die. So if you think to yourself, well, we've got circumcision settled. Okay. If you want to cinch it down to just the issue and practice of circumcision, sure. But somehow the nature of man wants to add something to the finished work of Christ. Maybe it has to do with the fact that we judge other people and we tend to think, well, they're not trying hard enough. Maybe we're not trying hard enough. Maybe we're not trusting completely. And the fruit of the Spirit is not relevant in our lives. Maybe we're not trusting. Maybe we are false brethren. But Paul is fighting this to show that faith is faith and works are not of faith. This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship, reforming today's church with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf.org. May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him deepened.